0: We are continuing in our series on the church this morning, our words of life. Uh, we're going to talk about elders this morning. I did not. I said this in class. I did not plan it. We are talking about the idea of elderships and pastors in uh, our class this morning. We did, and we will next week as well. Uh, this sermon's going to be a different emphasis than we did in class. In class, we're focusing really on sort of the technicality of the of the office and different things. But in this sermon this morning, I want to talk about the function and the purpose of the elders in the church. We think about, we've talked about fellowship, we've talked about uh, the the word itself, church, we've talked a lot about different things about fellowship and unity and togetherness. Now we're getting into some of the nitty-gritty on how is that facilitated? How does that work? What does that look like in a group of people? In any group of people, you either have one of two options. You either have hierarchy or you have chaos. That's it. Like most groups of people, unless it's a very unusual group of people, most groups of people cannot really function very well without some sort of hierarchical structure. And when you think about the Christian life, really, the Christian life is all about perfecting cyclical submission. When I say cyclical, we have a lot of different uh, submission structures in the Christian life. Of course, the ultimate submission, we think about this, is to God. I'm not going to read these verses, but they're up there if you want to look at them later, you can. Uh, We think about the ultimate submission that we have is ultimately to God, but then as that has filtered down, God has assigned various structures of submission in the Christian life. We think about Romans 13, he talks about being in subjection to the government. He talks about in Ephesians 6. Those who are in our, uh, in our circumstance it would be work and employment. Of course, in their circumstance it was slavery and, and, and bond servanthood. Uh, again, submission structures. And then we have the church. Different submission structures in the church. Which, again, you can think about the in- level to the individual submission. Submission structures in the family, parents and children, and in the marriage. This is all throughout, filtered all throughout God's design of the Christian life is one of learning how to submit. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. Ultimately, as we think about these human structures of individual submission and social submission, but in the ultimate form, submitting to God's will, right? And so when we think about the church, we're talking about elders today. We think about the church. There is some of these structures in the church that facilitate our ultimate goal of being pleasing to God, our ultimate goal of serving Him, as we are doing so, not just individually. The, the point of the church is that we're going to serve God together. We are pooling our, we, what we did this right now with pooling our resources, right? To accomplish things that we could not have accomplished individually. That's one of the functions of the church, is that together we do things more above and beyond what we each could do individually. If it was just me out in a community by myself and I didn't have anybody, I'd be fairly limited in what I could do. But because I'm part of a community of believers, our efforts are directed and focused and uh, are funneled into something that is hopefully more productive in the kingdom of God. And so we think about elders, the history of the position as we begin. The idea of the elder in God's people is not a new idea. This is something that really originates at the very beginning of Israel. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, of course, as God is thinking about uh, the exodus that is about to happen. He's about to pe- bring the people out of the land of Egypt. Exodus three sixteen, he tells, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, I, the, uh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done you in Egypt. And he goes on and talks about, this is, of course, Moses' call, right? Moses, you're going to go to Israel. You're going to bring my people out of captivity. What do you need to do? Gather the elders. And tell them what I've said to you. We see in Exodus 12:21. later on, after the, the ten plagues are, are well in effect here, we're coming to the end. Exodus 12:21, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, "Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover.." We're not going to read all that, but he was instituting what? You elders, you're going to be in charge of making sure that you all get the right Passover lamb and you do the blood on the doorpost and you do the right stuff and you're dressed the right way and the angel of death is going to come and pass over and you're going to be in charge of making sure that this happens in all of the families in Israel. Moses didn't do that. Moses didn't wander throughout Israel making sure that each house was doing what they were supposed to do. He delegated that responsibility to the elders of Israel. And then, of course, we come in Numbers 11 later on as Moses has brought them out, and they're thinking about instituting again this sort of kingdom, this nation that's going to be. The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And he's going to explain a bunch of stuff. Numbers 11, organizational structure in Israel. Now, ultimately, we know Israel was submitting to who? They were submitting to God. He was their ultimate authority, but within the human structure of Israel, there was this hierarchy. That the nation of Israel, at that time, in the millions of people, needed some organization. Moses could not manage a million people. Now, what's the most that one person can manage? I don't know. Don, how many people do you think you could manage? Can you manage a thousand there needs to be some organization, doesn't there? And here we see he's using the elders in Israel as this means of organizing the people. Now, we come to the early church, and we think about this is, of course, a little bit changed, of course, as we come into the, the history of the early church. As we think about the history of this position, Acts 11, verse 27, we know, of course, at the beginning, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it back a little bit. At the beginning in Acts, it's the apostles, right? Jesus has called them to their author- his authority, he, he was with them for three years, and then, and of course, in Acts chapter 1, he ascends, the Spirit descends on them. They're the ones in charge, but fairly quickly... Again, you think about the number of people. There needs to be some organization going on. Acts eleven twenty seven. 27. Now in these days, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders. Not sending it to the apostles. Of course, we had in Acts chapter 6, right? The apostles, the daily distribution of food in Acts chapter 6, the apostles ultimately decided we're not going to deal with that, right? We're going to keep preaching and doing the ministry of the word. What are they doing? They're sending this relief to the elders in Jerusalem. that They would be in charge of seeing that this would be used appropriately and in the right way. Acts chapter 15, 4 and 6. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the churches of Paul and Barnabas coming to discuss the matter of circumcision. What are we going to do about circumcision? What are we going to do about the old law? How are we supposed to deal with this? What, what are we doing? So they come and have this council. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses, the Gentiles, right? And the apostles and elders were given gathered together to consider this matter. It didn't take long for the elders to have a place of authority in these discussions of things that were happening in the church in Jerusalem. The apostles were still there. I'm not saying they were supplanting the apostles. And yet the apostles were bringing along, were, were establishing that it's not just going to be the apostles that are deciding these things, that there are going to be these elders who are going to help in making these decisions being involved in the leadership and the organization of the church. And as we think about this as a part of church planting, of course, this is what was going on in the first century, right? Paul and Timothy and Titus and Epaphras and Apollos, they're all traveling around and they're all establishing these congregations in various places. And what are they doing? Acts 14, 21. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed he says this to Titus later on Paul says to Titus in Titus 1 This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on, if everyone has a list, the requirements here, right, for the elders. But what's the point? A new church is not finished. You think about evangelistic work. A new church is not finished. I say finished, it's never really going to be finished until heaven. We know that. But the work of the evangelist is not done until there are local men able to, To take up the position of elder. Until that has happened, the work of evangelism is not yet complete. That's what we see in the early church. That they were going from town to town making sure that there were people in charge who could be in charge of what? Ultimately what? We looked at it in class this morning. What is their responsibility? To make sure that people were able to follow the truth. That was their goal. And as we think about their responsibility, we'll move into this section here. What were they supposed to do, these elders? Well, you got some in Jerusalem. You got some in all these churches that they're establishing. What did they want them to do? Acts 20, verse 28. As Paul is talking to the elders in Ephesus here the job that they have, the overseers. We see a different word here. He says it earlier on in Acts chapter 20 that he's gathered the elders. Here he calls them overseers. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, within the group. Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to make sure they were responsible for making sure that people heard and submitted to God's truth. To make sure that there was no, what did he say here? Twisted things. That there were no wolves that would come in and lead the disciples after them. That was the job of the elders. I'm leaving. You're never, and he says this in this sermon here, you're never going to see me again. You make sure, you elders, you who have been made overseers of this church, you make sure that when I'm gone, there's not all this sort of false teaching that comes in that distracts people and leads people away. Peter says it a different way. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." The word shepherd carries specific connotations, two specific connotations. One, of course, is the mundane idea of a shepherd, right? That you've got the sheep, and the sheep are all around, and they need food, and they need care, and they need guidance, and the shepherd, of course, was going to provide that for them. The second connotation, though, was what? The chief shepherd. Jesus, who calls himself the good shepherd, right? That idea when he says this is... You are, yes, in charge. You are responsible for these people, but you're responsible for them in a very specific way. Responsible for them in a way that is beneficial to the flock. Isn't that what he's saying here? In calling up Jesus, he calls up the kind of authority that Jesus has. Authority, yes, ultimate authority, but authority that was based in doing what was best for the other person. Isn't that the example of Jesus as the chief shepherd? The shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Such a dumb thing to do if you're a person. You think about the, the analogy in the first century there. Everybody understood that people were more valuable than sheep. And yet the shepherd laid his life down for the sheep. And of course, we see this then transitioning as Peter, a fellow elder, one who was both an apostle and an elder, who's admonishing these men to do what? To care for these people. And as we think about in the church today, we carry this forward. We know that not all elderships, not all groups of men do the job well, do they? There are some who are domineering. Some who do it for shameful gain. Some who are not good examples to the flock. I'm sure that, Maybe you've known people like that. But as elders, specifically, well, two of you, Steve's not here. Maybe he'll listen to this later. We understand, of course, your responsibility. And a responsibility that is specific to the church so that we, as a congregation, as we looked in Ephesians chapter 4, can become like Christ. We could turn this then to the rest of us, our submission to elders. And we think about why this is the case. Okay, again, what's the point? We've read already so far, what is the point here? That there needs to be organizational structures in any group of people to avoid chaos, ultimately to avoid false teaching. That's what we've read several times, right? To avoid false teaching coming in, and corrupting and twisting and leading people away from Christ. That's the goal, the mission of the elders, to make sure that that does not happen. And we have a part to play in that as well, the rest of us in this congregation. As we think about what Peter says, of course, he just said, right? He just talked about, we can go back here, right? He just said this to the elders. And what does he say the next verse in 1 Peter 5, 5? Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Hebrew writer says it this way. Hebrews thirteen seven. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. This is important. When he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, he's not talking about the government. Now, Paul does talk about that in another place. He's not talking about your boss at work. We know that How? Because he's talking about those who are keeping watch over your souls. The government does not keep watch over your soul. Your boss is not keeping watch over your soul. Your boss is not going to have to give an account for your soul. So what is he saying here? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It's easy for us to sort of rag on the elders They have a heavy responsibility that you do not. You are not going to give an account for the rest of these people. These yahoos, if you don't like them. The elders will. I don't want that responsibility. I'm not ready for that. Now, I do kind of have it because I'm preaching. I suspect that most of us in this room do not want that responsibility. Right? It's a heavy burden. And so what does he say to those of us who are not in that position? To obey them and to let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Not the elders, to the people. So here's the question as we think about this. Think about your part in this congregation. Do you think you make the elders' jobs easier or harder? Do you think you make it joyous for them or not? I should say we. Do you think we do that? Do we make it easy or harder for the elders in this congregation? Because what's the point that the Hebrew writer is making here? The way that we submit to the elders has some measure of advantage for us. Not for them, for us. We will suffer when we are not doing the things that we need to be doing, particularly in this idea of submitting to our leaders, those who will have to give an account. The Hebrew writer says it earlier in the same chapter. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's the point there as we think about this? He's making, again, that comparison, that analogy between Jesus and our leaders, the the comparison that's being made between the chief shepherd and the shepherd. Now, we know, of course, elders are not perfect. They do change. The chief shepherd does not. He is immutable, eternal, perfect. But we still understand That we consider those who are leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life. What's the outcome of their way of life? What does that mean? Well, we're not going to read them, but the passages in First Timothy and Titus about the elders, that's the outcome of their way of life. Why that list is all there. What the different things that an elder has to be. The different sort of requirements that are in First Timothy and Titus. What's the point of that? That's this. The outcome of a way of life of faith the outcome of a way of living that leads to the kind of person that can be an elder is one to be emulated. Which is why the Hebrew writer tells us to consider them and to imitate their faith. Because presumably they have shown what that looks like in years of service in the church. And so we think about what congregational attitudes make an elder's job easier. What what attitudes make such the work of joy. Well, it's the same thing that's going to be the same in any group of people, right? Humility, thoughtfulness, compassion, and joy. The same things that make a workplace, family, or country better. We think about these organizational structures. The life of the Christian is one of submission in the family, in the job, in the country, in the church, whatever it is, all the same things are things that make it better. Are you humble? Are you thoughtful? Are you compassionate? Are you you passionate about things? Are you zealous for what's going on? Are you exhibiting joy? Are you a complainer or a grumbler? Does anybody like to be with grumblers? Well, Maybe if you're a grumbler, you like to be with grumblers. But I suspect that even if you're a grumbler, you just, you want to be the grumbler. I don't want to listen to your grumbling. I just want to do it. That idea that we're going to be thinking about not just how am I serving God, but how am I contributing to this group? What am I contributing here? What attitudes am I contributing? What effort am I giving? What what work am I putting forward? And again, if I'm thinking about the commands, not options, the commands of Scripture to submit to those who are in charge of making sure that we are doing what God wants. Right? Remember, the submission structures are baked into the entire Christian ethos. Can God be proud of your submission to him? Okay, we can start at the top, right? Is it joyful for God to be your God? Or are you just like—I I think about God sometimes. And I think about Jesus, really. We all read it in Matthew chapter 13, How many ch- or Matthew 17 in our men's study. How many times Jesus was sort of exasperated with the disciples? Oh, how long do I got to put up with you guys? He says that in Matthew 17— I wonder if Jesus ever thinks that about me today. How long am I going to have to put up with Chris? How long am I going to have to put up with his his, his whatever it is, whatever you can put in there? Okay, well, that starts again with God, his authority, but that filters down. Husbands and wives, have you ever thought about that? How, how much your spouse has to put up from you? Same thing with the church, isn't it? I really don't want to be a burden on the elders here. I don't want the elders, when they're talking about me, to be like, oh, what are we going to do about this guy? I don't want that to be the case. I want to be the kind of person that is contributing in a positive way to the structure of this congregation. And I hope that you will be thinking about, in your service of the church, are you making the job of the elders easier? Are you making it a burden for them? Because eventually as we think about the individual feeding into the group, if more people are being more compassionate and more humble and more thoughtful, if more people are being more conscious about how our service is affecting those around us, what will be the result? Won't that be beneficial to all of us? Won't that lead to all of us having a better time here? All of us being more fulfilled and having more joy Do we make things easier or harder? Ultimately, we understand the famous quote, with great power comes great responsibility. That mostly directed at the elders today. You guys have great responsibility. But we also, as a congregation, have responsibility to to submit in a way that is beneficial and not burdensome. And so we put this up here one more time as we think about structures in the church. Submission to God, yes. Submission to the government, to our work, and submission in our church, submission in family and marriage. Ultimately, all of these feed into the same thing as we conclude. Why? Did God establish this? 1 Timothy 3, 14-15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these instructions to you in case I am delayed to let you know what? How people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God because it is the church of the living God, the support and bulwark of the truth. Why do these things matter? Because our church has a job. We have a job, right? What's our job? Our job is to support and bulwark and profess and proclaim the truth. That's our job together as a collective. What will facilitate that is elders who are the kind of men they need to be, who are doing the kind of job they need to do, and people who conduct themselves in a way that they're supposed to conduct themselves. That will filter into our purpose. Our purpose is the household of God to support and proclaim truth. And so as we conclude, if you're part of this congregation, we think about membership. What does that mean? Well, part of that is tied up in submission to the elders. But again, I want to stress this as we conclude. Your participation in the church of God is not contingent upon the righteousness of the elders. It is contingent upon the righteousness of Jesus, isn't it? The chief shepherd who has instituted these things, the eldership structure, but also other things. But as we think about our submission in church structures, is any of us perfect? Raise your hand if you're perfect. Oh, good. Nobody raised their hand. That's always a sign if people are not listening. They're just like, oh, I'm supposed to raise my hand. And so I know our elders are not perfect, too. Right? Sorry, Don. I don't know if you knew that. You're not perfect. And so we all need, in some ways, improvement, correction, right? We need encouragement and support. If you're here today and you're ready to make things better. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's happening in your life, the struggles that you have. I know you got them because you're a person. But if you need help, part of the organizational structure of the church is to provide that help, right? To provide us with what we need to do better in the future than we did in the past. Whatever it is, you can do better. I can do better. And we're going to do that by submitting to God's will for the church. If you're ready to be a part of that come while we stand and sing.